thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 25 minutes to 10 o'clock. Thank you very much for staying with us. And The Naked Scientist is brought to you by Grosch. Premium Lager. Gross. Choose interesting. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Chris, good morning. Hello, Reedy. Breathing a sigh of relief. And I'm not going to share with our listeners why. <laughs> uh, we finally have Chris. We were battling earlier on uh, the gremlins in our system and we couldn't hear each other. So there we go. Our favorite feature on a Friday. Uh, that means that our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask the naked scientist? We are learning about the world around us, the human body, the intricacies of nature. Our lines are open. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Chris, I've got so many questions about uh, Ebola, how it's transmitted, how fast does it spread, what makes a particular country uh, more uh, susceptible to it or at risk. What can you tell us? Yeah, it's really bad, isn't it? Um, Mm. We obviously feel for the people up in the northwest who in three countries now with disease activity, and this is the biggest outbreak we've ever seen of Ebola. It was discovered in 1976. In fact, the first defined documented human case was a school teacher in his 40s called um, Mabalo Lakila and the, the he lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo or what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo and at the time when that outbreak occurred there were two simultaneous outbreaks one was in Sudan one was there and a few hundred people in each cases got affected so you can see that this outbreak where we think we've got more than 1200 cases and nearly 700 people are, are, are confirmed to have died it's huge mm-hmm. so why is this happening well there's a number of reasons. Um, one reason is because of the bushmeat trade. In 2005, I was very lucky to interview Eric Leroy, who was a researcher who decided to try to find out where Ebola comes from, because despite it being discovered in 1976, we had no idea where it came from and why we had these periodic outbreaks. And so he did a trapping exercise because they speculated it must be carried by a wild animal, and they found that fruit bats are consistently found to have antibodies against Ebola and also to be carrying evidence of the genetic material of Ebola in their bloodstream. And this proves that, therefore, they must be carrying the virus. And what they think happens is that these bats die or get caught by humans for the bushmeat trade or other animals. And other animals are exposed to the body fluids because when you have Ebola, the virus um, causes every part of your body to become infectious. Mm -hmm. And this then puts the agent into the food chain And then people 
get involved in that food chain, and then once people have got it, people look after people because we're nice like that, and the problem is that a person who's suffering with Ebola is highly infectious and it then passes on. And unless you understand what's going on and you intervene quickly and early to isolate people, you can't break the infectious chain. Mm. Also, the incubation period, although it's usually quite short in under a week, in some cases it may be as long as three weeks, which means a person can travel considerable distances, particularly if they hear about a relative who wants some help and, and they move across the country and then they cause an outbreak in a new geography and, and we think that that's or it's a combination of these factors which is leading to the, the present serious situation in places like Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And then it must make it very difficult then for the medical uh, fertility. I mean here in South Africa there was a nurse who died of Ebola and uh, we're hearing even now that one of the leading doctors battling the disease in Liberia died on Sunday after contracting it. So how do you care for people with, uh, with, with, with Ebola? Um very carefully mm-hmm. uh, is the first point but this is the big problem because at the moment there are experimental vaccines that have been tested on animals but there are no human approved vaccines there are no drugs which will stop Ebola and when the virus gets into you it targets your immune system it infects a certain class of cells called dendritic cells which are very important in the workings of your immune system but it grows in those cells and then it causes the, the release of inappropriate amounts of the same signals that the immune system uses to control itself. So you have a huge release of immune signaling chemicals. This causes lots of other parts of your immune system to commit suicide. It's rather like your infantry just jumping off a cliff. So you lose most of the rest of your immune system and the virus attacks the linings of blood vessels. This causes the coagulation factors in the blood which normally stop your blood from bleeding if you have a small injury to a blood vessel. Those are lost, which means you then do start to lose blood from pretty much every orifice. And because of this huge inflammatory release of chemicals, you get circulatory collapse. People go into a shock state, and very often they don't survive. The mortality rate may be Mm. up to 90%. So the, the mainstay of caring for people is to make sure that you give them appropriate supportive therapy. You need to keep their circulation going, you need to make sure they've got adequate fluid replacement, and you need to keep them well enough with some calories going in to try to wait until their immune system can recover and can overwhelm the virus, which you know, only 10% of the time it succeeds. Mm. All right, and uh, the world on tenterhooks there. Let's go to George in Pretoria. Hi. Hello, George. Okay, we'll try to get George back later. Francisco in Kills River. Hi. Hi, um, I want to follow on, on, on what I touched on uh, a week or two ago with, with Chris. Um, the book John, the book by John Gribben, uh, uh, The Miracle of Life on Earth. I hope, I, I wish that he could read this book. I don't know if he have read it before, but the possible, it looks like if you, after reading this book, I, I, I really don't believe that there can be life elsewhere in the universe. Because the, according to this guy, the, the majority of stars, 75% of stars are less massive than the sun. 75% of stars out there in the universe, of all the stars, are less massive than, than the sun. They are red dwarfs. So this makes, this makes the likelihood of finding life elsewhere uh, uh, very improbable. And I'd like you to pin in on this because uh, this ties in with the whole question of, with the whole issue of metallicity. Either the sun is, is also not an average star. Although we refer to the sun as an average star, it's not really an average star. It's actually very special. And this guy points out all the special features of the solar system of the sun, which and this 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 points to the fact that that we are we are we we are less we are very unlikely to find life elsewhere in the universe because okay. it just can't exist. Chris, what do you say? 
Hello, Francisco. Well, what I would say is that um, there are something like 10 to the 22, that's one followed by 22 zeros, stars out there. So even if 85% of them are not like the sun, that means 15% are, which means 10% of 10 to the 22, which is a billion billion, are like the sun. And 10% of 10 to the 22 is still an extremely large number. If you knock uh, two zeros off that, that's 10 to the 20 stars. Um, one followed by 20 zeros, stars like the sun. And if you therefore assume that they've all got some planets, then that's still maybe seven times 10 to the 20 planets that might be Earth-like, so the numbers are still pretty small, even if only 1% of, of stars are like the Sun. So therefore I think that, that on those odds, we've still got a reasonable chance that there will be a system out there somewhere that can support a similar sort of Earth-like environment. Uh, then, of course, there is a role of the dice as to whether life would get started there in the same way it did here. But the fact that life got started here so quickly, we know that the planet's four and a half billion years old, we had bacteria thriving here on Earth by 3.9 billion years ago, so very quickly, within a few hundred million years, we had the chemistry that could fashion life already taking place. The odds are that somewhere in this vast expanse of the universe we, we probably do have a reasonable chance that life has also evolved or, or life processes are taking place. Also, there are uh, many, many stars which are much older than our sun. The universe is 13.8 billion years old. Our sun is only about 4.5 billion years old. Therefore, there, there are stars out there which are double the age of our sun at least, and therefore there's been a lot of time elsewhere in the universe for these processes to, to be tried and tested. So me, I'm of the opinion there probably is life out there somewhere. All right. Um, let's go to uh, JJ in Reimsa. Hi. Hi, Rudy. Mm. I need to know from the scientist, um, I've been diagnosed with REMD, and, but I haven't got like a, a complete explanation as to what exactly is the cause. Um, I don't know what the condition is. Can you just tell us a bit more about what the condition is, please? The, the rapid eye movement disorder. What? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know anything about rapid eye movement disorder. I haven't heard about that. I, I, I presume it's some kind of neurological condition, but um, I can't tell you anything about it, I'm afraid, so I'm going to have to skip that one. Maybe I can come back next week and tell you a bit more because it's not something I know anything about. I'm sorry. Okay. JJ, we'll see if we have an answer for you next week, eh? Okay. okay. Andre in Santon. Hi. Hi, Rudy. Mm. Um, I'd like... Uh, we're all aware that water goes down the drain in clockwise direction in the northern hemisphere and in the opposite direction in the southern hemisphere. Uh, my question is that if the, a clock had been invented in the southern hemisphere, would the hands then uh, go in the anti-clockwise direction? Would the inventor have, have decided that they would go in the anti-clockwise direction? Thanks. <laughs> Hello, JJ. Interesting hypothesis. I doubt it somehow. Partly because humans are still right-handed in the southern hemisphere 90% of the time. So we, we see asymmetry as a major part of our lives. The world is asymmetrical to us. 90% of us pick up a pen and do fine tasks with just one of our two hands. Most animals are not like that, and therefore there probably would be a bias anyway. Um, but just to pick you up on one point about water going down the drain clockwise and anticlockwise, this is actually a myth. And when Michael Palin steps across the equator, allegedly, and you see water going down a, a hole out of a bowl spinning in one direction on one side of the equator and one direction on the other, this is complete fabrication. It's a myth.
You can only see this effect if you do the experiment really, really carefully, which two scientists did. One scientist in the Northern Hemisphere called Shapiro, they published a paper in the 1970s doing it, and another guy called Trefethen did it in Sydney in the 1950s. And they demonstrated that you can achieve this effect, but you need a very big round bowl. You need a very small hole in the middle of the bowl, and by big bowl I mean more than a metre across. It needs to have the water put into it and be left to stand very still for a nice long time so the water and all of the residual circulating movements of water in the bowl are lost. And then if you take out the cork very gently, you will after a while see evidence that the water is turning very slightly uh, in the anti-clockwise direction in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. And this is because the Earth is turning and there is a, a weak Coriolis effect on a small body of water like a bowl. And, but you need to leave it there for a period of time for this effect to kick in. When you just fill up your washing-up bowl, the two taps are asymmetrically disposed in the, in the sink. The, the cold tap is usually on the right and the hot tap on the left. And when you therefore put the water into the bowl, it's already turning in the bowl. And this imparts spin into the water. And this has led people to conclude, oh, look, water mm -hmm. must go down the, down the sink one way on the northern hemisphere and another way in the south. And it's, it's not true, unfortunately. George, let's see if we can have a better line this time. George in Pretoria? Good day. How are you, ma'am? Fine. Your question? Um, um, good. I wanted to ask something. I have high blood pressure. I inherited one from my parents. Now, what I've realized is that when I'm inland, the forum is Johannesburg, or I'm in Mozambique, or in Devon, the thing changed. The, so I was asking whether the altitude has got effect on the high blood pressure. Hi, George. Um, not really. And the reason for this is that your arterial blood pressure is determined by how much blood your heart pumps out into your blood vessels and then how stretchy your blood vessels are. Because if you're effectively pushing a liquid which is incompressible into a bag, a blood vessel, then the bag, if the, if the bag stretches a lot, it's very saggy, then the pressure in the bag won't be very high because the volume can increase to accommodate the blood volume. If the blood vessels are very stiff, in other words, that's like having a very rigid bag, when you push the liquid into it, then it doesn't stretch very much and therefore the pressure must be higher. And because whether you're at low level or high level, you've got that pressure acting all around your body on both sides of your heart, it won't make a huge amount of difference, if any, to your systemic blood pressure. This is a function of how much blood is coming back to your heart and then how hard and how quickly your blood is being pumped by your heart into your arteries. So the correct treatment for high blood pressure is always to make sure that you keep an eye on it uh, and then don't drink lots of alcohol, keep an eye on your weight. And if it is over a certain threshold, then maybe take some tablets from the doctor that will help to keep it down because we know that high blood pressure is linked to an increased risk of heart disease and also mm -hmm. stroke. Is it clear in Kilani High? Hi, um, I just wanted to find out the shot down MH17 plane, um, the people that weren't killed on impact from the shoot, would they die before they hit the ground or would they die when they hit the ground? Mm. Yes, obviously we're very sorry to hear about of what happened course. to those people, but I think actually it's, it's probably likely that when the plane was struck, it would have partly broken apart in the air and this would have led to massive, rapid decompression of the aeroplane. When aeroplanes are flying, they fly at maybe uh, maybe 10 kilometres above the Earth's surface. And at this altitude, the air is very thin. And although the percentage of oxygen is still 20%, the pressure of oxygen is very low, and therefore you can't oxygenate your blood 
adequately unless you supplement with oxygen. And this is why aeroplanes are, are pressurised to simulate the air pressure at about 7,000 feet, which we're perfectly capable of coping with. And this means that there's enough pressure of oxygen to push oxygen into your haemoglobin for delivery to your tissues. So when this flight was unfortunately hit by the missile, the plane would have exploded or broken up. This would have lost all the cabin pressure, and therefore those people who were inside would have been instantly plummeted into conditions which were very like you suddenly appearing at the top of Mount Everest. And with no acclimatisation and no adaptation to those conditions, very quickly the amount of oxygen in your blood would have tumbled to extremely low levels, and this probably would have rendered those people very rapidly unconscious, so they would luckily have not have known what was happening to oh, them. What a relief. What a relief. And I bet Claire is relieved as, is relieved as well. I've often thought about that and wondered about it myself. Let's go to, um, is it Omar in Douglasdale? Yes, hi, good morning. Mm. Um, uh, amazing uh, scientist. I have two quick questions, please. First one, like many things formulated on Earth, there is proof on how they were formulated over these millions of years. Why is there no proof of science of how iron was formulated on Earth? How was it formulated? Second question is, in Mecca, where the Muslims go to pilgrimage, there's a black stone that they claim is not from Earth, and there is no other scientific equation like that formulation on Earth. Where does it come from? Thank you very much. Hi, Omar. Um, well, thank you for the interesting observation about Mecca. Uh, having not been to Mecca, I, I don't know about that stone, so if anyone could tell me a bit more about that, I'd be delighted. But in terms of the iron on Earth, iron is very common on Earth, and it makes up the bulk of the core of our planet. It's one of the most abundant materials we have. And where it came from is that the Earth was formed from gas and dust which aggregated around a proto-star, which when it ignited and became the sun, is the thing we see shining in the star in the sky now. So way back about five billion years ago, a big cloud of this gas and dust got buffeted. We don't exactly know why, but we think or speculate that some other star nearby here blew up and it created some shock waves and this buffeted this ball of gas that was just knocking around in space and caused it to start tumbling into itself. And because it became more gravitationally active, the closer all the particles became, they slowly coalesced to form this proto-star, which became bigger and bigger and bigger under its own gravitational attraction. And it then pulled in other dust and material around it, and that gas and dust included all of the chemicals that you see on the Earth today, bar the small amount that's raining in from outer space every year to about the tune of 40,000 tonnes of it. So basically, where did all that gas and dust come from? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of hydrogen in the sun which came from the Big Bang. The more complicated materials, like the iron, like the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the other chemicals we see here on Earth, they came from stars. Stars that have lived and died and blown themselves to pieces in catastrophic supernova explosions in the 13.8 billion years that the universe has been in existence. So all that iron actually was because a big iron-rich star blew itself to pieces in order to make you have a car here on Earth billions of years later. A sobering thought, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for that very interesting question. Okay, let's see who came in first. Obed in Edenvale, hi. I'd like to find out if the theory is true that says the world map as we know it is not accurate in terms of uh, the size and the shape of the continent. Okay, well, when you look at a map, 
you're looking at a, something akin to an artist's impression. You may have heard the, the phrase a projection. Because the Earth is a sphere, a ball, it's very hard to represent it on a flat piece of paper in a meaningful way. And so therefore some artistic license has to be used to stretch and shrink certain bits of it in order to make it all fit. And this means that the map is, to a certain extent, inaccurate. But when you use on-the-ground ordnance survey maps, for example, which are, which are done by triangulation and they're very accurately put together so people can go hiking, they can go, go out into the bush and they know where they are and they can relate the map surface to GPS coordinates, those ones on very, very um, big scales, they are very accurate, those sorts of maps. So it depends what sort of map you're looking at and how, what sort of projection has been used to dis display the whole of, of the Earth's um, outlines of continents and so on in order to fit them all on the page. Let's go to Temba. Temba in the Val. I think you've got a very important question. Good morning. Good morning, buddy. How are you? Fine. Your question? Uh, fine. No, my question is, uh, you know, since everything, I, I treat doctors as like uh, investigators. No? Let's start from that uh, point. With the AIDS virus, if it's broken down, go, do they actually break it down and find out exactly the structure of the way it attacks, what it attacks, and how can they then uh, counter-attack this stability? Okay, so... That's my question. All right, you got that, hey, Chris? Could you just summarize it for okay, me? Um, it's a little bit difficult yeah, to follow. What he, he's, what he wanted to ask was the AIDS um, uh, virus. What in your body, what part of your body does it attack? And to my producers, it said what types of cells in your body uh, would be attacked and compromised by the AIDS virus and what can be the counter response to that? Sure. Well, when you first acquire HIV, what it's doing is it, it gets into your body via you know a range of different routes. The most common route is to have sex. And once it gets in, it gets uh, or, or, or it has on its surface the viral equivalent of Velcro, sticky stuff, which means that it seeks out and sticks to cells that have on their surface two key chemicals. One of them is something called CCR5, and this is a sticky molecule which the virus recognises and locks onto, and this brings the virus very close to another molecule called uh, GP... Sorry, which is called CD4, and the CD4 is is then recognized by something called a GP120 molecule on the surface of the virus. And this pulls the virus very close to the surface of the cell and in it goes. And the cells that express those molecules are, are lymphocytes. These are your white blood cells. And specifically, they're a kind of, of lymphocyte called a T helper or CD4 lymphocyte. And these play an absolutely fundamental role in how your immune system fights off infection. The virus goes into those cells and it either turns on immediately and starts making new viruses or it hides in the genome, the genetic material of those cells, until a later date when those cells get activated or turned on and then the virus comes back out and, from having lurked in the genome, makes more copies of itself, puts itself into the bloodstream, seeks out more of these lymphocytes and attacks them. So over time, the number of these white blood cells plummets in the blood and if you have too few of them, then you don't have enough to support the actions of the other parts of the immune system. It's rather like having lots of soldiers in the immune system, but you haven't got any colonels, generals and captains and majors to tell them what to do, so you get disarray. And the immune system stops fighting off other things properly 
and then you start to catch other infections and you get what are called AIDS-defining illnesses. And this usually happens after about 10 years of being infected. And then when that happens, your immune system effectively goes into meltdown and usually people die of other infections. Yeah. TB is very, very common in HIV and, and abnormal or ultimate um, alternative forms of TB become very, very common. Other things like CMV, a virus, her some of the other herpes viruses become very common, and then yeast infections, candida and cryptococcus also become much more um, common in these people. And if you get one of these disorders, they can be treated, but ultimately you need to suppress the level of virus in the bloodstream so that the level of CD4 cells can come back up and mm. support your immune system. Thank you very much, Chris. A very important uh, question, especially for this time uh, part of the world. Thank you, Chris. We'll chat again next week. Thanks, Reedy. Bye, everybody. Ta-ta. See you soon. Bye-bye. The Naked Scientist was brought to you by Grolsch Premium Lager. Grolsch, choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.